Hallelujah. My grand, my daughter, brought and introduced a young man to me today that he has been my estranged grandson. I didn't recognize him. Where are you, sir? Stand up, young man, and let everybody see you. <clears throat> Hallelujah. One phase down and hundreds to go. <laughs> Praise God. Well, you know that Eric and I just uh, got back from Pakistan. Where are you at? Huh? Oh, there you are. And so uh, Eric uh, has got to uh, work all week to get some footage about God did. Yes, what God did. There you, you go. Show the footage? Yeah, show the bloom, the buns, uh, hot the beans. Where 
between husband and wife be rekindled. Alrighty, Eric, we didn't, uh, they kind of do it different than we do. They don't get a... Yeah, well, we do live TV. So not only what you right. saw, the 68, we had about 85,000 people there in front of us for that big crusade on Friday night. We had other services, about 4,000 on Thursday night, a couple thousand on a Sunday as well, and we minister to pastors. But what we do is we do it on live TV, so we're very conscientious that uh, as they are showing the testimonies, we don't try to break in and kind of... Say, steal the show, so to speak. We want the people that are there hearing and being ministered to yeah. to know what's going on. So typically we'd say it in English, so everyone knows what's going on, but we had some amazing miracles, Pastor. Yeah, we, we had, had um, you saw a couple right there. If you've yeah. ever seen that the young man with white uh, jeans on, he was 12 years of age. He couldn't walk. He walked to the platform after the prayer of faith. Yep. Another man you saw the cast probably, uh, the guy raising his hand in the cast. Uh, his, his arm had been broken, and they tried to set it like five times. The doctors, every time they said it, the bone would become dis, dislocated again. So he was in excruciating pain, as you can imagine. He said that night, as the prayer of faith went forward, he felt God put the bone back. The pain was instantly gone. And that's when he came to the show. He still had the cast on, but the bone was completely healed. Yeah. That young man that uh, I put my hand on his chest, he was, uh, I don't know, 30 35 or so, yeah, yeah. but he couldn't talk. Couldn't talk at all. And so we prayed for him and put our hands on him, and uh, I felt the chest bones begin to move, and all of a sudden he just started taking off talking. Yeah. And uh, he just talked, 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 and I thought, Lord, gee, man, he, hallelujah. It was good. He was but still talking it, when we left. Yeah, and we had a couple young kids with club feet that were yeah. turned out straight and uh lots but, of cripples lots of cripples came, uh, came forward yep. deaf ear deaf, that, yep. that girl, and a lot of demon and, possession yes yep. uh, he, he, over there i mean uh what i shared a little bit on wednesday night and you know I, I try to keep the people speaking the gospel focused on what they have to do but we had about 250 bad guys trying to disrupt the meeting as well we had to have several security forces step in and defuse something so where we're going is, is really life and death in so many ways. And we're thankful, again, church, for your, your prayers, your support. Again, we couldn't do this without you. But uh, I was just doing a quick total, Pastor. We've done five crusades in Pakistan in the last about 16 months or so. Yeah. Uh, in addition to the 68,000 uh, uh, in change we saw come to Christ, we've seen 336,000 come to Christ in five crusades. Not, that's not live TV. That's not anything else we're doing. That's, that's just, just physically in front of people crusade. in Pakistan. Yeah. So. God yep. is moving so mightily in the second yes. largest Muslim nation in the world. It's hard to believe we're able to do it the scale we're doing it, Pastor. Yeah. But uh, the Lord's helping us get the, keep the doors open. Uh, the doors seem to be, there's a lot of unrest. There was, there was thousands protesting while we were there, thousands. Yeah. In fact, uh, just a few days ago, they put an arrest warrant out for the former prime minister. Uh, the interior ministry was under arrest while we were there. People were, it was really becoming a, kind of a hotbed of, of frustration for the people. So God kept us safe, and um, again, we got in, we got out, we yep. got the mission accomplished. And we kind of chose not to go outside of the hotel and yeah. stay yeah. in there where it was a little I think little that was wisdom, safer. right, Pastor? Yeah, Amen. hallelujah. Amen. Or chickenless, whatever. It is. Well, we could have sent somebody else out ahead of us, but that would be kind of bad. There right? you go, you know, yeah, hallelujah. You know, make sure it's okay, and then we can go out behind it, but we, I didn't think that would be a good yeah. idea either. So we do want to say thank you for all that you 
Amen. did and all that you helped us to do. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Thank you, Eric. All right. Thank you, Pastor. <coughs> then let me make this announcement. I want to invite you, if you feel called, to the fivefold ministry, uh, and that means to the being a pastor, prophet, uh, evangelist, a teacher, or a, an apostle. On April the 16th, I'm going right after service. We're going to have a luncheon, and uh, and some of the pastors here at the church are going to uh, be there. They're going to be open for questions and discussions about where do you need to go. And after 40 years, I've seen some of the most useless failures because of ignorance and just it, not knowing what you should do. So there's no sense in you to be there, so I encourage you to join me, okay? All right, and if, even if you think that you have just some questions about it, please uh, join us. Your life will be changed about it. Hallelujah. And uh, you know that Jesus is here. He's here and he's unchangeable. He's not looking for a way not to do something. He's looking for a way to do something. And so he's here, and whatever he has ever done in the past for any single individual, any group, any nation, he is here to do the very same thing. He does not change. We change him, but he does not change. He has been interceding for you. Hebrews 7, 25, he's been praying for you in all of your battles and in all of your conflicts and your struggles. He's been praying for you in his communication with the Father. He's been talking about you, not in a bad way, but in a good way. And you, whatever you have, un, have done, is not unforgivable, but is forgivable at simply calling upon his name. Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins would be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. Jesus wants us to be comfortable in his presence. Amen? If we are willing and obedient, we shall eat of the good that the Lord has placed in this land. It is God's desire for you to experience him today. And I say that so that you will have an expectancy where you are, that you do not have to wait for somebody to pray for you or have a word of knowledge. You don't have to do any of that. 
You simply need to let Jesus, as he is moving among us, all you have to do is just let him do what he has been known to do for others. Forget about your yesterdays. Don't be condemned because you have not done anything that has ever surprised God. And anyway, Paul declared that he was a chief of all sinners. So, besides Paul being chief, you probably and I probably don't rank too high in the totem pole of authority of being a sinner. So let's forgive ourselves. And God declared that he would forgive us, wash us, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So today, choose to believe God and choose not to believe the devil. Amen? Hallelujah. All righty, let's turn our Bibles to, man, I better get going, Romans 8, 28. Today I'm going to attempt to talk to you about divine sovereign judgment. Now, people, when you talk about the sovereignty of God, they think everything is God. Everything is, that happens to us is sovereign. It can't happen unless God wants it. Well, hell is enlarged every day, and God doesn't want anybody to perish. So that can't be true. Well, you know, sovereign you know, it's just the sovereign thing that God's doing. Well, let's realize that there are many sovereign things that God has done and will do. But there are over 3,000 promises that God will not sovereignly fulfill without your faith. I had a man one time calling out. I was getting ready to pray for him. I said, uh, well, how are you doing? Well, God's in charge. I said, really? I said, where was he last week when you and your wife was fighting? Did he go on vacation and forget about you? He said, well, no, but I said, did he help you fight? Did he help you divide your household? Did he help you get mad? Did God's not in control of you? You are in control of yourself, and you are empowered by the Holy Ghost to be in control of yourself. But we are not puppets. We are people of free choice. Now, the word sovereign means this. Now, now again, it is God's divine. In other words, it's a planned Sovereign judgment. It's a planned sovereign judgment. Now, the word sovereign simply means 
supreme or ultimate power. In other words, God has ultimate and supreme power, and when he wants something done that he has foretold will happen, nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop it. But that doesn't mean everything that God wants done will happen. Beloved, it's above, it's, uh, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health even as your soul prospereth. See, God has already said, I want you to prosper and be in health. But it's all conditional upon your soul being prosperous also. So it's not the sovereign will of God, but it is the will of God that he has declared because of his power and authority. Now, it means to be self-governed. In other words, that whoever has the sovereignty to declare something, to state something and bring it to pass, they have the power to govern their self. And then it means to completely be independent of others. Now, let me talk to you just for a moment about sovereignty. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, God made decrees about his desire and will for man. Those were all done by a God that governs himself, that is superior in every means of power and authority. He is independent of any needed help to make a decision. He made them his self. But there are thousands of decisions that God made in his sovereignty that you and I now can partake of by faith. Like people say, uh, well, you know, I don't think that God wants to prosper you. Well, God never asked you. He never asked you whether you wanted anybody to prosper or not. In fact, he never even asked you if you wanted to prosper or not. But God's desire is he takes pleasure in the prosperity of his people. Now, see, that is a sovereign decree that God will fulfill that you can activate by faith. 
You aren't waiting for God to do it. He's already stated his will and desire. Now you have to use your faith to bring it to pass. You know, God hates poverty. You look in the Old Testament, he hates it. And you and I do not have to be bound by debt or limited by our finances because God said this in his sovereignty before you ever read it, God said, give and it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Now it is true in God's sovereignty he stated that, but he also put the fulfillment of that desired statement into your court. You give, and it shall be given. If you don't want it, just don't give. And you say, well, I'm rich because of the sovereignty of God. Well, in one sense, yes, and in another sense, no. Yes, God made the statement, but your faith has to activate the statement. Right? Jesus said, I'm not going to pray for you anymore, but God loves you as much as he loves me so whatever you ask, he'll do for you. Now, you don't have to ask God, God, if it be thy will that I have a block long Mercedes. You don't have to ask God. You don't have to ask God because God has already sovereignly declared what he wants for your life. Amen. So whatever you ask, you can be assured that God will not withhold it and God will grant it. Now that's what the Bible says. Now, you might say, well, you know, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. Well, show me scriptures. Don't just rabble off out of the dead portions of your mind what you think is right. Amen. See, people do that. You know, I've had people say lots of things about things that I've said and done, but realize that and I'm not trying to be mean, but sheep only see about ankle high. Shepherds see far better than you do because we are empowered by God. You don't know, never mind. Just about took off there on a tangent. Most people don't know their nose from their neighbor's when they're looking forward. See, you think you know the heart of God. 
Well, you may know it for your life, but you don't know it for a congregation. I hate to inform you, I watch for your souls because you can't watch for your own. Well, well, I, I think some things you do is foolish. Well, God uses foolish things. And maybe he just pulls one out of the hat every once in a while. Without your consultation or your counsel or even considering you. See, God is over a congregation. He's not appeasing an individual. And God has placed me as a shepherd to watch for the sheep of his pasture. Now, I may do foolish things, but you don't know the end of that foolish thing. And if God never consulted with you or told you why I shouldn't have done it, then you don't know why I did it. I remember one time I told teenagers, you know, listen, keep your hands where it's supposed to be. Somebody said, oh, that's just totally uncalled for. But a young man that was in a situation that he shouldn't have been broke it off with a girl and moved on out of that relationship. Now, you didn't know that, old wizard. No, no, some of this stuff really irks me because it's just fights. It fights what God has set, and God set the structure of authority up without consulting you at the board meeting. woman told me one time, she said, God told me you're not smart enough to be pastor of this church. I said, well, what you should have done was asking what I would do if you made that statement. Because I'm telling you, get out of this church. They were head deacons, him and his wife. I said on a Sunday morning, I, I said, this is what happened. I told them to go. I opened all the doors, and I said, and you can follow them right down the road if you want. Now, you would say, oh, my word, that's just so, it's just so what? Would, would, did you agree with her? Yeah. I'm not smart enough to do what I'm doing. I don't know how to get up in front of 100,000 people and tell them the story of Jesus Christ. I'm not smart enough to open up blind eyes. I'm not smart enough to make the lame walk. I'm not smart enough to make the blind see. I'm not smart enough to make the deaf hear. I don't have to be smart enough. 
I just have to be authorized and enabled by God to do it. So moving right along, I'm sorry, I've been in the house a few days with Phyllis. Now, God uses his divine sovereign times of judgment for good. There is nothing bad in judgment if you respond to it when it is presented to you. If you don't judge yourself, then you find yourself in the hands of a living God. And you don't want to be there. Judgment is, by all means, a declaration of God's mercy in an attempt to get you into God's goodness. So nobody should be afraid of judgment. Right? Absolutely not. I'm not talking about judgment that tries to get people to be like us. I'm not talking about judgment that looks at somebody and thinks that what they're doing should be done, it, done a different way. I, I'm not called a micromanager and neither is any other believer. The only time that we get involved in the judgment of a brother is if you see your brother in error. And it seems like that's the only time we don't get involved. Huh? Yep, absolutely. And so, realize the Bible says that all things, God works all things out to the good. And judgment is one of the things that puts God in a place that if you will pay heed, that you will respond to his merciful conviction in order to be placed in his goodness. Why? Because sin removes you from it. Even unknown sins. Now, you might think that, well, you know, sin is not such a big deal. I know it. Said all those that were disobedient to God. Listen, folks. One act of disobedience can mean the difference between heaven or hell. You say, oh, man, I'm doing it all the time. But do you intentionally mean it? Well, well no, I just make a, I'm just a goofball. I mess up all the time. Welcome to my family. Now, I, I am not an innocent man. 
Sometimes it takes every fiber in me, and I would think a whole bunch of Holy Ghost to, to keep me from doing what I think God would want me to do. Notice that I said that I think that God would want me to do. And so, understand that there are times of God's sovereign judgment. Now, if I could have Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15 on the screen. This is how important this is. This is God's response to the devil and Adam and Eve right after sin. Right after sin has broken the unity of man with God. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it, her seed, shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is a prophetic proclamation about what we're talking about today, a sovereign judgment. <coughs> God says, I am putting enmity between thee, between thy seed and her seed, and his, her seed shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now that means that there is a day coming when God is going to set in motion where there will be a seed that comes from a woman, not a man, and that it will rise up triumphantly and bruise Satan's head. Now, that's a prophetic proclamation of a judgment that is going to come. There is a foretelling of the judgment that I'm talking about. There is a process of this judgment it has a time on it. God says that this is going to happen. The woman has, a woman has never had a child without the seed of man. Now you may, oh, I think, yeah, this is a Christmas story. No, it's not. No, it's not. And then we realize that it's a time on it, 
and it will be done in stages. Nevertheless, it will be fulfilled. Now, it is unveiled to us that the seed mentioned here will come from a woman. Now, it's never been known that a woman ever gave birth to a seed without a man. This is the only place in the Bible that this phrase is used concerning a woman. And God says it prophetically. And then what we have to realize is that Isaiah 7:14. We all know this that the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that is a portion of the fulfillment of that scripture. And then in Isaiah 9, 6, it says, Unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, that was a confirmation that God was working in a sovereign way to fulfill what he had declared on his own fruition. God chose how man would be redeemed. And then we see that as this is given, we see in Matthew 1, 20 and 21, that there would be a woman that would conceive, her name was Mary, and that she would bear a son, not from an earthly man, but from the Holy Ghost, and his name would be called Jesus. Now, we might not think too much about this. This is just a glorified Christmas story. No, it's not at all. I'm telling you that God has prophesied certain times that he would intervene and make sure that every I is dotted, every T is crossed, and every period is in place. Then the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ himself was manifested to take away the sins of man and who, whosoever is in him is free from sin. Hebrews 1.13 says that Jesus himself remember the promise, the woman's seed, will bruise his head. And then it, it declares unto us that Jesus by himself 
freed us or purged us of our sins. That's a wonderful fact that that's why Jesus came. Amen? Let's go to Matthew 26, 59 through 68. We're going to read it quick, but I want you to see the second thing after Jesus is born, Jesus is the only man that has never sinned. And it says, now the chief priests, elders, and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, many false witnesses came, and yet not, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses. And they said, this fellow said that he is able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest rose up and said to them, Answerest thou nothing? That which is these witnesses that are bringing accusations against you. And Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said unto him, well, you said it. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest rent his clothes, saying he has spoken blasphemies. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now we have heard him blaspheme. What think ye? They answered and said, well, he's guilty of death. Then they did spit in his face, buffeted him. Others smote him with the palm of their hands, saying, prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? Now, the whole gist of that whole passage of Scripture is that Jesus Christ was sinless. Not only was he born of a virgin at an appointed time, do you know that God sovereignly taxed the nation of Israel three times? The last time was when Joseph and Mary had to go to their hometown and have it recorded and pay taxes. Well, that, that, that was the Republicans. That was the Democrats. No, it was God. You mean God raised taxes? God used any means he chose to use to get his plan through so that man could experience goodness from God. 
You mean we ought to be thankful when God raises taxes? I didn't go that far. I'm just telling you what the Bible said. I don't think I want God raising taxes. Oh, Uncle Joe's doing a pretty good job of it himself. Except on everybody but himself. Anyway, moving along. I'm not political. But even Jesus was wise enough to recruit a tax man. Jesus was without sin. Hebrews, the fourth chapter, says that he was tempted in like every manner, like we were, yet without sin. Now, this is important because a man that sinned was bound by sin could not die for a man and pay the price for his sin. First Peter 1.19 says that we were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb that was without spot and blemish. 2 Corinthians 5.18 through 21 says that we've been reconciled unto God. And then it says in the last verse that he who know, knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because divine judgment starts when Jesus leaves Gethsemane. He is brought into the courts of judgment of the high priest, then taken into the courts of judgment of Pilate. This judgment is a sovereign time. God sent forth his son made of a woman at the chosen time. Everything had to be in place for Jesus to be judged and for Jesus to die for our sins. Now, the divine judgment brought about by God himself. He had prophesied it in Genesis, the third chapter, confirmed it by the virgin birth, and then provided a lamb without spot and blemish to bring it to pass, John 1.29. And there are two major sections of passage of Scripture that tell us what Jesus did in his judgment. You can find that in Psalms 22, the whole verse, the whole chapter, and Isaiah 53, the whole chapter. Now, Psalms was written 1,000 years before Jesus came on earth. Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus came upon the earth. 
So the two passages are Psalms 22 and Isaiah 53. Now, before the birth of our Savior, Jesus was prophesied that he would carry our sins. Let's go to Isaiah 52 and verse 14. Judgment is about to start, and we get to see the horrible, hideous payment of sin. Isaiah 52, 14, and it says, As many as were astonished at thee, his vintage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall his sprinkle many nations, the king's shall shut up their mouths at him, for that which has been told them shall they see, and that which they have had not heard shall they consider. Now, this passage of Scripture, the first part of the judgment, was that they took Jesus, put a crown on his head, put a reed in his hand, and started slapping his face and asking him, prophesy and tell us who it is that smote thee. So Jesus, his vintage of looking like a human being was taken away. And it's found in Psalms 22, and if you'll put a verse 16, I believe, Psalms 22 and verse 16. This is what the Scripture says that happened to Jesus, that he did not look like a man. I'm sorry, verse 6. Remember, man was made in the image of God. What image did sin give him? And it says, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. When did Jesus lose his looks and his identity or identifying factors that revealed that he was Mary's son? At the first part of his judgment, a crown put upon his head, and he was hit with hands and spit upon. So bad that Jesus' face was no longer recognizable. Jesus sees the byproduct of sin. He doesn't say that he's a disconnected person. He says, I am a worm. 
In other words, there is no recognition of Jesus and the place that he once held with God when sin begins to be placed upon him or begins its requirement of payment. Man loses his identity. When we get born again, our identity is restored. Amen? Amen, absolutely. So, we lose our identity when we fall from sin or become separated from God. The second thing I want to bring out, if you'll go to Psalms 22, and let's go down to, oh gosh, let me find it here. Looking for the scripture, it says, and they pierced my hands. Which one? 16, there you go. For dogs have compassed me about. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Do you know that Israel never crucified people? All of their criminals and all of their sinners were put to death by stoning. But God, in an attempt to show man the horrific payment of sin, reveals the death that his son, the lamb that would take away the sins of the world, would pay. It was crucifixion. This was stated 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified. God is unveiling to us the cost of sin upon a man's life and why he could not pay it. We understand that Jesus bore our sins. Somebody say, bore. That means that they were taken off of us and put upon him. Let's go to Isaiah 53. I'm going to quickly try to get through this. I know they say, oh man, these are just facts. I'm so tired of facts. Well, if you'd have known it, I wouldn't have to preach it. One thing that this does for me, it reminds me how terrible sin is and the price that it demands of every person. I think sometimes, too many times, Christians don't know what sin is. They think it's a list of to-dos and not-to-dos. That's why you keep doing those not-to-dos. And the reason you keep doing it is because you've never taken up the time 
to really find out if it's sin or not. A thousand years before, Isaiah 53, we're going to jump down to verse 3, and then we're going to take, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, surely. Surely this is the truth as we look back at it. Surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. People think the cross is something that God did upon one man. No. God put it up on Christ that he may die for all men. He was wounded for our transgressions. For whose transgressions? Ours. Our transgressions. He was bruised for our, somebody say our, our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes ye are healed. All of us, like sheep, are going astray. We have turned everyone out of his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. When we look at the cross, when we see what Jesus went through, that was supposed to be us. But we could not go through that and be killed and then have eternal life. But Jesus, because he was a righteous man, he could substitute us. He could take our place. He could bear our transgressions. Not that he become a sinner. He never became a sinner. He bore our sins. If he had been a sinner, death would have been his master. Jesus never sinned and did not suffer as a sinner. He suffered as the sin bearer. Some of the stuff that we hear and some of the stuff that people preach is just foolishness. Then he goes on and says, He was taken from the prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken because of the sins of others. He made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief, and thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. An offering for sin. His soul doesn't become sin. He shall see his seed and shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul. He shall be satisfied by the knowledge. He shall, by his righteous servant, justify many. Notice, though Jesus is a sin-bearer, he is still a righteous man. Therefore, he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, will I divide with him a portion of the great, and he shall divide a spoil with the strong. What happens? Jesus, when we see him going through all that he went through, he is doing it in our place. In other words, everything that's happening to Jesus is due every sinner that has sinned because that's the wages of transgression. Then we realize that Jesus was put to death and he died on the cross. And on the cross... Jesus makes a statement. First, he declares, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God never forsook the righteous. But Jesus, bearing the sins of people, Jesus felt the horrific separation that our sins had separated us from our God. At that moment that Jesus dies, Jesus is taken from the cross, and he's taken by Joseph of Arimathea, which is a wealthy man. His vineyard and his wine presses are next door to Calvary. Take Jesus from Calvary, the Mount of Skulls, the same mountainous region where Abraham was going to take Isaac's life. They take him down, they prepare his body, they put him in a tomb for three days. At the end of three days, he is raised from the dead by the faith of God. After that resurrection, the kingdom of Satan is destroyed. The 8th John, the 12th chapter, verse 31 and 32. Now is the prince of this world cast out. Satan is stripped of his power, stripped of his authority, and mankind can now be reconciled unto God. Now, believers, I know that this may be shocking 
And if you can't handle it, close your eyes. Because I want you to see the punishment of sin that awaits you if you forsake the righteous way. Believers, behold your king. Amen.